You're listening to All Marine Radio, broadcasting from Costa Mesa, California, on the All Warrior Radio Network. Radio, right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. So I hope you're having a good Wednesday so far, hump day. And uh, today's a travel day for me. Yep. Heading back uh, to California today from Joint Base Pearl Harbor, Hickam, where I'm uh, broadcasting from. So uh, had a chance for the first time in my three times here. To do a little sightseeing. So, uh, I did. And, uh, got a chance to go to the Punch Bowl. So I took some pictures. You'll get a chance to see that. And, um, the reason I went to, of all the things I could have gone to see, I felt that I should go see was the punch bowl uh, my grandmother's brother uh, his name is Frank Metzger um, he was killed in the Pacific in World War II and so um, killed on the USS Halligan a destroyer when it hit a mine the mine detonates adjacent to the forward magazine, blows the front third of the ship away. 19 to 21 officers are killed. He's one of them. 
He was a third in command of the ship, a lieutenant, uh, a United States Navy lieutenant, and he was a gunnery officer on the ship. So the command structure of the ship went COXO gunnery officer. Um, 100 and, I want to say 50 of 280 were lost in the explosion. Um, so anyway, I've talked about, I think I have, I can't remember, but uh, hearing my grandmother talk about how um, devastating it was that, you know, they lost him, and then on top of that, they never had his body to even bury, uh, to get some sense of closure with. So, um, so anyway, his name is on the wall of the punch bowl. So as I began my sightseeing, I thought, I need to go out there. Now, rental cars are hard to come by here in Honolulu, as they are around much much of the nation. So, um, I have a cab driver that is the only cab driver here in Hawaii that I use. So I, I have a cell phone, so I call him up, and I said, hey, will you take me sightseeing? And he said, yes. So he comes over. And I call him Eddie. Eddie's Korean, but he was born and raised in Japan. Now he lives in Hawaii. So anyway, Eddie comes and gets me, and we go to the Punch Bowl. I was surprised at how close to downtown the Punch Bowl is. If you look at it, the Punch Bowl is uh, the National Cemetery, right, um, in Honolulu. And it sits in a an old volcanic crater. And so you have Honolulu, and then inland you go up, and in a, in this, in down in the uh, in the crater of the volcano, is this national cemetery, and um, it's a little bit different for the national cemeteries I've seen because most of the national cemeteries I've seen have marble slabs in them. If you go to the one in Los Angeles, marble slabs. And this one has everything's, their brass plates in the grass. So it was different. kind of surprised me. And then um, there's the big colonnade area where they have uh, the memorial walls for those that went uh, missing. Uh, and not MIA, but they were... Missing and presumed dead as ship sank in World War II. Uh, also, they've added additional names from Korea and Vietnam. So, um, so we went out there. And in short order, I found my great uncle's name. And, um, and so took a few pictures of that. Walked around. Uh, there's a chapel up there. Uh, there was a wreath in the chapel uh, that said 70, 70th anniversary of the Battle of Midway. So just very interesting stuff um, there. So went there, and then uh, from there went out to Fort Island and drove around Fort Island. Uh, got out and kind of walked along the... Uh, I was, and, and in my mind's eye, I was trying to go see uh, the battleship. Missouri, USS Missouri is tied up there on Battleship Row. Um, 
and it's uh west it's uh west essentially west of uh the Arizona Memorial so yeah the USS Missouri there piece of american history right where the the ship on which Japan's surrender uh, in World War II was done. But I have to tell you, battleships look, I mean, they look menacing. If you if you look at a fully loaded battleship in the water, um, it kind of looks like the bow is high and then the center part of the ship sits low in the water. They look, they look dangerous. And so, um, you know, obviously the Missouri now, no ammunition, no fuel, sits high in the water. But, you know, you see the guns, you, you know, you see the ship itself tied up there. And, you know, it's I get, I get this feeling uh, in a lot of places here because there's so much history. I mean, when I come to my the place where I stay, you drive down the street to come here and you see pock marks in buildings from bullets that the Japanese shot that day. And so, I mean, history is everywhere. And uh, and these buildings are historical structures, so they can't they can't change them. They they they're the same as they were in 1941. So I I mean if you and if you love history, I mean, come on, it's the best. So got out and um, and kind of took some pictures and uh, walked around and checked it out where the where the Missouri was, and uh, and then went over. I was hoping to be able to hop on one of the trips over to the Arizona Memorial, but got up to uh, where the the ranger station is and start, started talking to one of them and said, hey, how long does it take to get out there? And they said, she said, do you have a reservation? I said, no. She said, well, you know, summer days like now would school us out. She said, uh, you need a reservation to get out there. If you don't have one, you kind of go space A, and there's a line for that. But you'll you would today you'll you'll be waiting hours, and I didn't have that to do. So went to lunch, and then uh, came back to my room, and and uh, took a little bit of a shower, and then started getting ready for post-traumatic winning. And uh, so I do post-traumatic winning, and had a very very interesting conversation with a couple of Air Force doctors. And uh, they were exceedingly complimentary about the presentation, asking me if I could come up to Anchorage and uh, do it. I said, I'd love to. And um, But it, it was real interesting talking to doctors because they believed that, you know, they, they said, hey, your observations are absolutely spot on. And um, about there needs to be a multi-layered approach to this thing. And I heard this from a psychiatrist the last time I was here. And she said to me, she said, you know, I love what you said was that, you know, um, we've out outsourced this to medical professionals. And, you know, and everybody's kind of taking a step back. And then when it doesn't go right, they look at us and say, what's wrong? When she said, Mac, you're exactly right. There's a huge leadership component here that isn't there. And I'm glad you said that. So they heard it. So anyway, uh, it's um, it's a pretty heady experience. Um, and 
but extremely gratifying when medical professionals, and these guys are docs, come up to you and, and want to engage and tell you how good they think it is and, and blah, 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 blah. So, um, yeah, um, it was uh, it was another really, <laughs> really cool experience. I guess is the only way that that I would uh that I would characterize it. I and I'm I'm blessed um to have have these things happen to me. Um I don't know too many people who have the experiences that I have. But you know, the the biggest thing that I wanted to communicate um with these future commanders here in the Pacific Air Force is that they have an incredible opportunity to change lives and um, seize the moment, take the opportunity um, to to be devoted to them, to learn about this stuff, and then make it come alive in their lives and uh, and change their life. And so, uh, so anyway, it's interesting, interesting conversation, and then interesting conversation with people. Uh, that weren't commanders that were there, and uh, so uh, so just a, another <laughs> pretty crazy, wonderful day in my life. And uh, I, you know, I, there's a, there's a couple people that I should um, I I need to thank publicly, and uh, one of them is Elaine. Well, first of all, Shereen Brown. The course of me getting here is Don Goldfein sees me do this at the Pentagon. She's Dave Goldfein's wife. Uh, Ellen Dunford brought me to the Pentagon, the wife of, uh, of the former chairman, Joe Dunford. Um, and um, Don Goldfein, she sees it, and she says, you got to come do this for us. And so I did. And then Shereen Brown who's now the first lady of the Air Force. Um, she, Her husband is, is now the chief of staff. He was um, the uh, commanding general of PAC Air Force. So anyway, um, she brings me out here. But COVID happens, and the whole thing gets put on hold. And the person who kind of who ramrodded it through and made sure that, that, that this thing happened her name is Elaine Daily Rath, or Rath Daily, one of the, one of the two. Um, so Elaine is, you know, she's been absolutely um, fantastic to me. Uh, Elaine Daily Rath, hyphenated. So anyway, I I, I need to thank. Um, her and then the senior, the general officer that's attached to these commanders conferences is a guy named Mike Winkler, the brigadier general, and he'll retire here in, in uh, I believe, in September. And I will tell you this: I mean, uh, both he and his wife are they're Red Sox fans, if you can believe that. But um, now it just, I mean, gone incredibly out of their way um, to to be supportive of me, uh, make me feel welcome, you know, you know, tell me to come to receptions, introduce me at receptions and things like that. And so, um, so I need to thank, 
you know, Mike Winkler, Brigadier General type, United States Air Force, uh, just for his graciousness and uh, for rolling out the Air Force red carpet uh, for me here and making me feel at home and, and welcome. And uh, they've done that every time. And I just, I, I couldn't say thank you enough. And, and you know, for me, a, a guy that was born on December 7th, um, uh, to come here to Pearl Harbor Hickam, to be staying, you know, I'm a nine iron away from the water right now. Um, and I can walk down to, to a path that, that's right next to the harbor and, you know, look to my right and see Ford Island, look to myself and look to my left and see, you know, the opening of the harbor that le- leads out to the Pacific Ocean. It's just uh, an incredibly historical place and been a, a great thrill for me personally and then to meet the people I've met and hopefully, you know, give them some ideas about what they can do um, to what they can do to to do a better job relative to suicide and the things that I've learned that other people have taught me that I know work. And, I mean, there's no, there's no discussion about it. I know they work, and I've seen them. Uh, I've just seen it too much. So, uh, so I just want to thank uh, Brigadier General Winkler and uh, and his wife. I mean, there's other than being Red Sox fans, uh, <laughs> which I just found out the other night. I was like, what? They said, yeah, we're going home to watch a ball game. We watch. Well, they were like the College World Series. We're big Reds. We're big baseball fans. And then she looked at me. She said, and she said, <laughs> she smiles and she says, we're Red Sox fans. Don't hate us. And I laughed. I said, no, nah, I'm not hating. Um, but just uh, really cool people. So, um, so just uh, uh, three trips that um, I'll never forget. And hopefully uh, they will lead to more events and, and just the opportunity to open doors and to, and to help people. So uh, on Wednesday, there's a really interesting article I want to talk to you about. Um, and it's... Uh, it's unbelievably sad. Uh, the headline is, Since 9-11, military suicides, suicides dwarf the number of soldiers killed in combat. Listen to this headline. Since 9-11, four times as many U.S. service members and veterans have died by suicide than have been killed in combat, according to a new report. Four times as many. Four times a day. Uh, it uh, makes, makes you want to vomit when you hear that. Four times as many people have come home and taken their whole, own lives. And somehow or other we think we're doing a good job. What the fuck, man? So, um, yeah, I want to talk about that. So, good morning to you on this Wednesday hump day. Let me tell you what's going to happen on, in the show today. And, and, let me t- and I'm geeked about it. Okay, which is <laughs> which is not normal. Um, so you've heard, if you've listened the last couple of days, you've heard testimony about the budget. Well, you're going to hear more. Now, the testimony that you're going to hear today is a little bit different. Okay, it is the subcommittee on sea power and projection forces. Okay, Department of Navy fiscal year 2022 budget request for sea power and projection. Now, uh, 
the acting Secretary of the Navy, Navy the, I'm sorry, the acting Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Chase Stefani, is there. Vice Admiral James Kilby is there. He's the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations. I will tell you what, Kilby's a really impressive dude. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Warfighting Requirements and Capabilities. Uh, I'm, very, I'm, I'm very impressed with Kilby. And then um, some, a friend of mine, Lieutenant General Eric M. Smith, who's the um, Commanding General Marine Corps Combat Developmental Command. Development Command. Uh, so, um, so, but let me tell you what uh, what I've enjoyed most about these hearings. Um, there's two Marines and a sailor. All right, there's a representative Golden, right, who I believe is from Maine, and um, you're going to hear him, and. He is a former Marine. His um, first name is Jared. And let me see if I can... Uh, I don't want to sign up for your, your newsletter, man. Come on. Let's see. He grew up in Leeds, Maine. After enlisting as an infantryman in the Marine Corps, he deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan before returning home to Maine. Currently lives in Lewiston, Maine, with his wife, Isabel. And he's a sharp dude. Sharp dude. The other one is a congressman by the name of Gallagher. He's wicked smart, too. Former Marine. And let me tell you about him. He's at Princeton University. Yeah, how about that? How about that? Right? How about that? Oh, well, that explains it. Gallagher's not your basic. Right? Bozo. Um, it says, Mike joined the United States Marine Corps the day he graduated from college and served for seven years on active duty as a counterintelligence, human intelligence officer and regional affairs officer for the Middle East, North Africa, eventually earning the rank of captain. He deployed twice to Al-Ambar in Iraq as a commander of an intel team, served as General Petraeus' Central Command Assessment Team, in the Middle East and worked for three years in the intelligence community, including tours at the National Counterintelligence Center and the Drug Enforcement Agency. So you're going to hear him. And then um, I, I talked about um, the naval officer yesterday. Um, her name is Luria. And let me tell you, man, I become a bigger fan after listening to, to what you're going to hear um, today, and she's she's like she's amazing. 
she goes down the list, right? So she's uh, she's born in Alabama, goes to the Naval Academy, gets a gets a double major, one in physics, one in history, and a minor in French. Right, served as a Navy officer for 20 years, operating nuclear reactors as an engineer, where she rises to the rank of commander. Yeah. She's the first female American sailor to spend her entire career on combat ships. Yeah. But let me just tell you, listen to her go through the budget and things the Navy has done, things the Navy has stopped, and then begin to craft and ask hard questions. And, I mean, it, listening to these people gives you hope for the democracy. Really. It gives you hope. Right, because they're really good. So some of the things we talk about, or you're going to hear about is, you know, to, to Eric Smith, Lieutenant General Smith. Is, does the Marine Corps have a red line for amphibs? What is that number? Right? Um, Congressman Luria asks him, explain EABO. Right? Expeditionary base operations. Right? Expeditionary advanced base operations. Right? And then she goes into shipbuilding. They talk about, or, or somebody else asks about force projection. Somebody else asks about LPD and light amphibious Warship construction. Representative Gallagher summarizes the whole thing, and a week of of you know Navy Marine Corps budget discussions, and he starts talking about what are we doing presently though to deter China. It goes back to Congressman Luria. She wants to understand. How did this requirement come to be? And so she looks at Eric Smith and she says, can you explain? What are the source documents? Where does it come from? Who generated the requirement? And so he tries to explain that. And then Representative Golden, the guy from Maine, right, um, he has some final questions for General Smith. So I, let me just tell you, I think you'll find it, I'm, I, I, you know, I've listened to it twice. And I I found it interesting the whole time. Um, so you're going to hear that. So I'm kind of geeked about that. Anyway, good morning to you. The United States Marine Corps Band makes uh, this morning official. Good morning.
And this is dedicated um, to my uh, great uncle. And um, somebody who I never met. Somebody um, somebody um, who left this country probably, I think he was 23, 24, uh, out in the Pacific, involved in Battle Lady Gulf, um, Battle of the Coral Sea. Um, he was involved in uh, the last stand of the Tin Can Sailor, right, that whole fight off Samar. Right, they were part of the QRF that went to that. Um, he's involved in in one of the gunnery platforms and invasion of Okinawa and the invasion of Iwo Jima, and gave the only life he'll ever have for his country. Body lost at sea and never recovered. And so, um, you know, we talk about sacrifice all the time. This guy had his whole life in front of him. And and that was it, right? And so he's a single guy. And the only thing that remains of him that I know of is his name here in Hawaii. And so um his name is Frank Metzger, uh, my grandmother's only brother. And uh, and so I went up uh, to the Punch Bowl yesterday and took a picture of his name. You'll see that picture attached to this uh, this podcast segment. And I think you know it's I mean for obviously for me it's personal. I mean his uh, a picture of him hangs in my studio, and he's just a young, good-looking guy who goes to sea, who sails west to meet the Japanese. Who gets within, right, the Battle of Okinawa is down the home stretch of World War II. And uh, he's killed. You know, so, I mean, to me, he's emblematic of, of a lot of young men and women that have left our country to make it what it is and never, ever return. And so I think it's important that, you know, every once in a while it does become very personal. And certainly doesn't have to go far to be that for me coming here and then going out there today and uh and seeing his name, knowing that his body was never recovered. So uh mindful of that, uh this is dedicated uh to my great uncle, somebody I never met, I only heard stories about. Um, God bless you and uh Semper Fidelis. <laughs>
you're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore, so young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day, and Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Time for us to check the weather now. Yeah, a little bit different kind of weather. So here, late on a Tuesday night, you'll hear the show Wednesday. So it's uh, about 1 o'clock in the morning on the West Coast, which makes it 4 in the morning on the East Coast. Yeah, I'll have friends getting up pretty soon. Um, currently it is Dark Cloud and 57 at Quantico. Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune, it is dark, cloudy, and 69 degrees. 29 Palm, dark, cloudy, and 89 degrees. Camp Smith and White, dark, cloudy, and 73. In the Philippines, it is partly sunny, and 88. Okinawa, partly sunny, and 78. And in Darwin, it is partly sunny and 87 degrees. At the home of Walmart Radio, it is clear and 65 degrees. Haven't heard any bad news about Jack and Joe, so I assume they're alive. Yeah. My nephew taking care of them. Um, currently, at Joint Pace Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, where I'm doing this show from, adjacent to Honolulu. It is partly cloudy and 79 degrees. So that is a look at your weather. And I want to go back to uh, the story that I, I started with because it's a it's pretty, um, pretty unbelievable story when you see that kind of a number, right? Um, so again, the story is written by Courtney Koob. C-U-B-E. Could be Kube. I'm not sure. Um, the headline is, Since 9-11, military suicides dwarf the number of soldiers killed in combat. The story's pretty short. Oh, I'll take it back. I guess you have to read the continue reading. You have to tag, hit the continue reading button. 
or not. Um, source says this. Since 9-11, four times as many U.S. service members and veterans have died by suicide than have been killed in combat, according to a new report. The research compiled by the Cost of War Project at Brown University found an estimated 30,177 active duty personnel and veterans who had served in the military since 9-11 died by suicide compared with 7,057 killed in post-9-11 military operations. The figure includes all service members, not just those who served in combat during that time. The majority of deaths among veterans who account for an estimated 22,261 of the suicides during that, during that period. The majority of the deaths are among veterans who accounted for an estimated 22,000 of the 30,000 suicides during that period. Quote, the trend is deeply alarming, the report says. The increasing rate of suicide for both veterans and active duty personnel are outpacing those of the general population, marking a significant shift. Now, um, I'll tell you there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. And that is because the people who, a lot of people who join the military have had a lot of trauma in their life. And then we add more to it. And it doesn't work out so good. And then when they come looking for help, we, we give them our modern industrial age, right, system of mental health, which is we will medicate you and you can come talk about it. And we all know the DOD is a low bid relative to therapists. And so you come and you get medicated and you talk and it doesn't help. And you quit. And then you come back again a few years later because your spouse kicks you in the ass and says, you've got problems, you've got to go back. And you do. And then you quit again. And then you go back to what works, which is what? Faking it and self-medicating with alcohol or drugs. And then more trouble. And as somebody, as a, as a Marine, most recently in Montana said to me, dude, I'm just fucking tired of it. After he told me, this comes at a really good time for me, seeing post-medic winning. So, I'll have more uh, to talk about this to say. I will uh, read the Brown University um, study. And let me just, uh, let me just go to the study right now. And it's entitled, High Suicide Rates Among United States Service Members and Veterans of the post-9-11 wars by Thomas Howard Suit, S-U-I-T-T, the third, Boston University. And this comes out of the Watson Institute of International and Public Affairs at Brown University. It's part of a series entitled 20 Years of War, a Cost of War Research Series. All right, so here's the summary. Suicide rates among the United States public have been increasing for the past 20 years, but among active-duty military personnel and veterans of the post-9-11 wars, 
the suicide rate is even higher, outpacing average Americans. The post-9-11 wars refers to ongoing U.S.-led military operations around the world that grew out of President George Bush's global war on terror and the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. This paper estimates 30,177 active duty personnel and veterans of the post-9-11 wars have died by suicide, significantly more than 7,057 service members killed in post-9-11 war operations. These high suicide rates are caused by multiple factors, some inherent to fighting in a war and others unique to America's war on terror framework. Partially, they are due to risks common to fighting any war, high exposure to trauma, stress, military culture and training, continued access to guns, and the difficulty of reintegrating into civilian life. In the post-9-11 era, the rise of improvised explosive devices, the attendant rise of traumatic brain injury, and the war's protracted length, advanced in medical treatments, advances in medical treatments that kept service members in the military longer, and American public's disinterest in the post-9-11 wars have greatly contributed to increased suicide rates. High suicide rates mark the failure of the U.S. government and the U.S. society to man- manage the mental health costs of our current conflicts. So, let me just see how long the study is. It's 35 pages long. So, um, I don't know if I should assign this. I want the Mensa brothers to listen to um, this, these hearings that I've recorded and played the last few days, and just to get their thoughts um, about these hearings, which I have found, you know, very interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of want them to um, weigh in on that on Thursday, and then maybe in a week. Uh, we can rip this apart, and I can get somebody on to talk about it, and then they can talk about it. So, but, uh, yeah, moderately disturbing. Moderately disturbing. Let me ask you a question. Why is this coming out of a study at Brown University? Why don't we know this? Why doesn't the VA tell us this? They certainly know. I mean, Brown, where do they get their data? Mostly from the VA? Go online and get it from the DOD. Why don't we? Why don't we tell the story? You want to know why? Because it's a bad story. It's the same thing that, that when I, I dug through and I created a slide that shows um, that shows active duty suicide starting in 1999 and going for 21 years to 2020, and it, suicide just it goes up every year goes up, 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 every year. Why don't? Why have I never seen that slide before? Oh, I'll tell you why. Because nobody wants to. Nobody wants to tell the truth about this shit. Everybody, let's talk about rates. Really, why don't we put it out there in the in in the front window and call it what it is, and talk about how ineffective we've been. At finding remedies to to help. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Whatever. Um. So 
Yeah, I'm starting to spool, so let me do my breathing exercises. <sighs> a top story in Stars and Stripes. In a Pentagon reversal, Austin backs independent prosecutors for sexual assaults in the military. In a statement issued Tuesday, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the Pentagon would work with Congress to amend the Uniform Code of Military Justice by removing the prosecution of sexual assaults and similar offenses from the military chain of command. Now what's interesting is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, there was headlines that he kind of echoed a little bit different position on this. This statement, the one I just read you, comes a day after Austin received the final recommendations of the Independent Review Commission on Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment, which he established on February 26th. Quote, the IRC recommended the inclusion of other special victims' crimes inside this independent prosecution system to include domestic violence. I support this as well, given the strong correlation between these sorts of crimes and the prevalence of sexual assault. Austin said that in the coming days he would provide President Joe Biden's specific recommendation based on the findings. The about-face on removing such prosecutions from the chain of command comes after the Pentagon's long-held position to the idea. Some key lawmakers remain staunch in their resistance to that change. So, I believe they already have the votes in Congress to, to push that through. So, that uh, the top story in Stars and Stripes... couple of headlines um, one is about the hearings that, that you've heard the last couple of days senators grill navy leaders on budget to deter China as US destroyer sells through the Taiwan Straits and so uh, what you're going to hear today in these in these discussions is this whole notion of divest to invest and the navy gets taken to task because they say look we never see we never see the payoff we hear this stuff and i think it's congressman luria a former united states navy surface officer right a graduate from the naval academy and she kind of walks them through hey let's go back to 2006 let's go back to this and um and she says the payoff never happens, though. We hear it, but the payoff never happens. Uh, top story in the Wall Street Journal, U.S. existing home prices hit a record rise in May, and that is 24%. Wow. Yeah, you might want to sell your home. There's a uh, editorial piece, Joe Manchin's Voting Compromise, by the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Haven't looked at it. I'm sure it's interesting. Joe Manchin, the most powerful man in the country, he decides what will go forward relative to President Biden's uh, agenda. Yeah, straight up.
Nothing really I want to talk about in uh, USNI News. In Marine Corps Times, same stories. Here's kind of an interesting one. And that is this whole notion of drone defense, right? This is written by J.D. Simpkin. This enormous drone gun can pluck UAVs right out of the sky. So this gun is like monstrous. It looks like something out of a movie. The ever-increasing implementation of unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, and modern warfare has yielded an on-the-ground race to develop technologies necessary to knock them out of the sky. One Australian developer is hoping to be a staple in that market. Enter Drone Gun Tactical by Drone Shield, a remarkably large, 56 inches long, yet lightweight, 16 pounds, weapon that looks more akin to the offspring of an FN SCAR, and there's a hyperlink to that, and an E-Tool on steroids, FN SCAR. It's a picture of a weapon, right? Looks like an... An assault rifle. Anyhow, um, running off dual rechargeable lithium batteries that can operate in excess of two hours, Drone Gun deploys non-kinetic jamming technology to knock out a drone's connection and its flight for more than from more than two kilometers. Asia Times first reported that, but it does one better than simply destroying the UAVs entirely. According to its maker, Drone Guns, which comes with a rifle-inspired rail for scope mounting has a satellite navigation jamming capability to commandeer the drone and force it into an immediate landing, allowing for further investigation of enemy technology. One of the UAV's operation, once the UAV's operation is interrupted, the video feed to the drone's operator's end will immediately cease. Depending on the jamming frequency, one program via a simple dial on the rear of the weapon, Drone Good can simply send the UAV right back to where it came from. All the user has to do is remain sighted in. Drone Gun. <laughs> How about that? But, you know, this is, I mean, this is not, is no joke. And let me tell you why. Imagine aircraft that deploy outside the continental United States. And then imagine a swarm of drones each carrying a some kind of shape charge. Small shape charge. Or let's just say the drones carrying three or four of them. Just small shape charges. And though this drone drone swarm comes looking for all the aircraft that are forward deployed, and without ever really firing a shot, all your multi-million-dollar aircraft have holes in them, right? Systems are down, things that can't be replaced, and you're combat ineffective. Yeah, that's why the whole drone swarm thing is no joke. You got to protect the force, and that includes, you know, your comm assets, 
your radar assets, right? Your your radar infrastructure, your com infrastructure, all that susceptible to those drones. So, and again, very much like the um, a lot of different weapons kind of races that we see. Um, at some point, somebody will create something that will fry them, that will knock them out of the sky, and all of that. And then, you know, you're going to see the people that make drones. You're going to see them refine the product again, and so and so it goes in the develop, development of weapons technology. So that in the news, and then let's see, top stories in early bird, and then uh, and then I, and like I said, I don't know if it makes me a geek that I enjoyed listening to. Um, House Armed Service Committee testimony, uh, but I did. Top stories in early bird, number one, four times as many troops and veterans have died by suicide as in combat. So, talking about the study we talked about earlier. Number two, Afghanistan's Air Force is a rare U.S.-backed success story, but it may soon fail. Number three, this this may not be the big one. Army scientists warn of deadlier pandemics to come. Number four, training oversights could have military medics, could leave military medics unprepared for combat, according to a report. Hmm. Number five, shadow of anthrax. The COVID-19 vaccination effort owes much to past failures. So all that in the news, overseas operation, Top U.S. general in Africa, wildfire of terrorism is on the march in Afghanistan. I'm sorry, in Africa. So, that is a, uh, that is a look at your weather. Your weather. That is a look at the news. Um, so, what you're going to hear now is, uh, is testimony, as I said uh, earlier. But uh, it is the subcommittee, the House Armed Services sub- subcommittee on sea power and projection hearing. And this happened on June 17th. So um, the people that are, are the panel are Jay Stefani, the acting assistant secretary of the Navy for research, development, and acquisition. Vice Admiral James Kilby, the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Warfighting Requirements and Capabilities, and Lieutenant General Eric M. Smith, Commanding General Marine Corps Combat Development Command. So, and I would tell you, let me just tell you, uh, Congressman Luria, she's impressive. As is Congressman Gallagher, as is Congressman Golden, two Marines and a Naval officer. Um, they, as I said before, they give you cause to think that maybe maybe something good can happen. And I will tell you this, Congressman Luria, if she wants to be the next Secretary of the Navy, I vote for her. Yeah. So, uh, with all of that said, here they are. I'll get out of the way. Lieutenant General Smith, uh, my first question to you is simple. Is the amphibious force, forcible entry capability today, what's needed as a joint force to defeat China? Sir, if I understand the question, is it still a, a requirement for the joint mm-hmm. force? Absolutely, sir. The JFIO, joint force, joint force uh, operation, joint forcible entry operation, 
absolutely vital to the combatant commanders. Yes, sir. Do you see this as a needed capability into the next decade? Uh, absolutely. Yes, sir. We all know the backbone of the force is being able to generate uh, two MEB or two a Marine Expeditionary Brigade lift. Uh, the administration appears ready to walk away from that, that, to have that forceful entry capability and the supporting infrastructure. Uh, some projections have our amphibious fleet down to 26 ships. Tell me, what's the Commandant's red line as far as the bottom line for total number of amphibious force ships? Sir, straight answer up front is, is the requirement based on a study that, that uh, Admiral Kilby, my friend Jim, and I did together was you need 31 traditional amphibious ships in the appropriate mix, which is 10 big decks, LHA, LHD, and 21 LSD, LPD. The low end of that uh, study is 28, and the difference in those three is that you, you pass, it, there's additional risk in arrival times. Additive to that, sir, is 35 light amphibious warships, and that includes, sir, that's based on a single MEB, Marine Expeditionary Brigade, yeah. forcible entry, yeah. and our expeditionary units that are out always, and our four deployed naval force in Japan. Last question. Do you believe that it's essential and critical that the contract for the one LHD and the three LPDs be executed? And if it's not, do you believe that creates unacceptable risk for the Marine Corps? Right. I do believe that the, the multi-ship is, is a good thing. It, it saves dollars and it ensures that those, those amphibious, uh, amphibious ships, which in the case of the big deck amphibs, sir, are strategic assets are available for the combatant commander. Otherwise, sir, we are passing uh, risk on to the combatant commanders. Very good. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You're back. Next up is uh, Ms. Luria. Well, thank you, and I'm going to make a slight change today. I'm going to actually focus on the Marine Corps first um, and have a, a question, um, General, about the Expeditionary Advanced-Based Operations, the EABO. I'm very intrigued by this concept and where the concept came from. Um, could you provide some insight? Was this a capability that U.S. Indo-PACOM requested? Um, in other words, did Indo-PACOM say, we need to come up with an island hopping strategy to achieve the following goals? Um, did it come from the joint staff? Was it generated uh, from a bright young officer within the Marine Corps? I mean, can you give me a little bit of background on, on how you developed this strategy? Yes, ma'am, I can. It's actually a little bit all of the above. Um, Indo-PACOM clearly has indicated they need the ability to well, it starts really with our distributed maritime operations. If you're going to enable our fleet commanders and do sea denial, which is what we do, that's who we are as a naval force, that is a piece of it. How do you contest the sea from the shore? That's one of the genesis, or part of the genesis. Uh, Indo-PACOM clearly has a need for us to do distributed maritime operations, and I can tell you that EABO, Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations, was going on, General Berger has emphasized it. it. It was going on even before when General Berger was in my seat and I was in 3MEF. We were doing long-range raids, long-range seizures of terrain for a short period of time to refuel F-35Bs and do strike. We were doing that under a guy named uh, Colonel Bams Brody, an F-18 pilot who was the 31st MU commander back four years ago. So it's a combination of all of the above, ma'am. Well, well, thank you for that insight. And did you establish a time frame? Like we want to achieve this capability by a certain time and on a certain scale? Yes, ma'am. What we know is that the Commandant's direction to me is that by 2023, I have to provide an initial operating capability to Lieutenant General Stephen Rudder, who is the Commander of Marine Forces Pacific. I'll stop by 2023. That initial capability is in his hands or I have failed. Thank you. And so to me, it sounds like you developed a strategy 
And from that strategy, you then came up with requirements. These are the things the Marine Corps would need in order to accomplish that and with the timeline. And out of that ultimately resulted in the request and the budget that we're seeing because your request reflects the things that will allow you to achieve this strategy and this new type of, of operations. Would you say that that's correct? Ma'am, correct statement, concept, and then you get down to specifics of, of specific requirements to meet that concept, which supports that strategy. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Well, I appreciate you clarifying that. And um, I know that we're going to do a second round, so I might not get through the next part in this first round. But Admiral Kilby, I was going to shift to you um, just to start the scene setter here. In 2005, the PLAN had 216 ships to our 291, so that was an advantage of 75. Fast forward to 2020, they have 333 ships to our 296, so that's, a, that's an advantage of 37. So, and in fact, that's a swing of 112 ships in this four-year period. And people say that, you know, China and the PLAN is a pacing threat. Well, when I hear pacing, I think like a pace car, we're, going, we're keeping up with them. Would you assess, or are we keeping up with them today? Um, is that still an accurate term to call them a pacing threat? Yeah, they're a pacing threat. I would say shortly, we are not keeping up with them. Well, thank you. And, and I wanted to next, you know, highlight the fact that another thing I've said is that I think we lost a generation of shipbuilding. Um, in 2007's Navy budget submission, you wrote that new platforms such as CVN-21, DDGX, CGX, LCS, Virginia-class SSN, LPD-17, LHAR, and the MPF family of ships will comprise our next generation of battle force ships. So of those eight classes of ships, half have either been failures or abandoned. We did not pursue the CGX. We find ourselves today with cruisers that are over 30 years in age, um, which severely impact our O&M budget. And because the LCS is not fully mission capable and we got rid of the frigate, we're just now starting to replace the frigate. Um, the same is also true for the, DDG, for the DDX. So for the past 20 years, we've lost a generation of building these surface combatants. And I think I'll dovetail off what Mr. Gallagher said. In Congress, what we want is a plan. And moreover, what we want is to stop overstating and under-delivering. So every budget, we have a plan. Um, every 30-year shipbuilding plan is, in my assessment, not really a 30-year shipbuilding plan because years one to five are constantly changing. Um, so I'm really running out of time, um, and I think I will pause until the next round of questions to, to continue my next round. Actually, if, Admiral, you want to quickly respond, or do you want to reserve in, in the second round to that? Uh, I acknowledge Rep. Loria's statements. She's accurate. Um, we, I feel that force design for the future will set us up for a better path. FFGX is not a revolutionary ship. It's got all of many common elements that are on our platforms today. It will have a smaller AMDR radar. So I think, um, while I, while I acknowledge what you said about LCS and, and, uh, the, the, uh, Zomo class, uh, we are on a path to not be so um, – have so many new technologies on our new platforms. DDGX is going to take the combat system from the Flight 3 and put it on a ship that's got margin and reserve to grow into the future. So it's not such a tremendous leap. Uh, I'm not trying to ignore what happened in the past. I, I, I acknowledge what you said. But the force designed to have more smaller surface combatants frigates, which are roughly equivalent in combat power, not in magazine capability to a Flight 2A, 
is an important part of distributed maritime operations. And to create a DDGX, it's got the reserve to add some of the things that Rep, uh, Representative Langevin intimated, I think is equally important. Well, I'm not we'll continue. We'll continue. Yes, I'll leave that. <laughs> Great. Um, Mr. Mr. Brown, uh, the floor is yours. I'll turn quickly to uh, General Smith. Uh, I earlier this week talked with Sergeant Major Black and, and asked him about force design. I know we've gone over it a lot already in this hearing, but I wanted to ask in particular how the Marine Corps plans to navigate the fact that we need to be able to project force now with the fact that we need to be able to face challenges in the Pacific area uh, in the future and, and how you're balancing those real and ongoing current threats with the future investments that we need to make. Yes, ma'am. Very briefly, I'd echo what my shipmate uh, Jim Kilby said earlier, that we are, there is near-term risk that we are investing in some longer-term capabilities that we must have against the pacing threat we don't have now. In order to generate the resources for that, we divest of things that we cannot get to the fight immediately. So in all candor, ma'am, what happens is you have to have those Marine Expeditionary Units. That is your fight tonight, forward-deployed force. The ARGMUs, the Amphibious Ready Groups, Marine Expeditionary Units that are forward deployed, those three ship units that are out there, Navy Marine teams ready to do humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, and to strike if required. That is your mitigation factor. And in all candor, it's done on the back of a bunch of young uh, Lance Corporals and a bunch of young uh, sailors. That's who's absorbing the risk right now until we get where we have to go. One last question. Um, the Commandant has suggested a light amphibious warfare ship to provide the opportunity for the Marine Corps to execute uh, the Commandant's planning guidance. And what he wants is a smaller ship, something that can move around. Uh, the debate has always been, should it be built to a military standard? Should it be built to a commercial ship standard? Uh, can you tell me, um, what does the Navy believe about this? Do you believe that it should be built to a combat ship standard or a commercial ship, ship standard? So is that question for me? For me? Yeah, I want, I want you and then Lieutenant General Smith and, okay. and uh, Vice Admiral Kilby. Uh, I, I, I believe to, to, uh, the other part, the, the comment I wanted was an affordable ship as well. So mm -hmm. I think uh, a, a commercial standards with specific Navy features is the way we need to go for this ship. And what those features are needs to be worked out with the, with the Marine Corps. Very good. That's General, General Smith. Sir, sure, very briefly, uh, Admiral Kilby and I sit on the requirements evaluation team for that, the RET. So we are in lockstep. There's zero daylight between Jim and myself on that. It needs to be something that is, as Secretary Stephanie said, affordable so we can get it in numbers, and it has to be something that looks like everything else that's out there, and you protect the cargo, meaning the Marines and the sailors that are on it, for a limited period of time in order to um, be able to evacuate them. That, that is the purpose of that ship. I know that's not a loved sentiment, but that cargo is precious to us, yeah. so it has to go off, but it has to be affordable in large numbers, sir, and it has to look like everything else. And I would pass to my shipmate. Yeah, I'm in agreement with Eric. My recollection, sir, may be imperfect here, is that the law was born from the INSFA study the Navy and the Marine Corps did when we were responding to force design, mm -hmm. which was an acknowledgement that we needed a different platform to support the EAB concept. So, uh, but Eric's right. We've been lockstep on this. My analogy, though trite, is uh, if I'm in a, if I'm buying a, uh, a F-150 truck, I want to buy a custom truck. Mm -hmm. I don't want to buy an 80 Bauer truck because if I take the 80 Bauer off road, I might damage it. Mm -hmm. But the custom is built to do that, and that's what I wanted. How I want to treat this amphibious warship because I need to support those Marines. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I need to look at survivability, which could be. 
let's make sure that that ship, if regrettably, if it takes damage, I can get the most important cargo off that ship, which is the Marines and sailors that are on it. So that's all going into the mix, as well as what does that ship look like. So there's a lot of conversation now as Eric and I get together with a Marine and Navy team to kind of refine the top-level requirements to understand what we need the ship to do. Very good. Thank you, Mr. Golden. Uh, Mr. Gallagher. I think we had a really, for the Navalists on the committee, we've had a really interesting week. And if I could attempt to summarize, well, at least what I've learned, it seems like, particularly with the testimony we had two days ago, uh, and what really came out in, in Representative Luria's questioning to the CNO and others was, since at least 2004, we've been playing this sort of divest-to-invest game or making this argument that, well, we're going to buy future capability, uh, even though we can't really make the math work for present capacity. And so we on the committee, and I've only been here five years, kind of feel a little bit like, uh, you know, Charlie Brown and you guys are Lucy with the football. And we keep getting it you know, pulled out from under us and putting all our eggs in the basket of some sort of future magical third offset thing is going to solve all our problems for us. But now we're starting to see all these signals from the environment, right? You know, the, the PLA has a, a bigger battle force Navy than, than we have, right? Uh, they're being more aggressive. They just had a historic uh, number of aircraft threaten Taiwan. Um, and now we're, we find ourselves in, you know, what I've called the Davidson window, struggling with this trade-off between the capacity demands of the present and sort of the, the promise of future capability. Um, and I think to the extent you're, you're hearing frustration on the committee, that, that's really it. And if we're operating on a six-year time horizon, it's, not just, it's actually not just a matter, Lieutenant General Smith, of being able to fight now. It's, it's what are we doing now to deter that fight from happening, to prevent the, the worst-case scenario. And it's useful to plan against the Taiwan scenario because it's in some ways the most dangerous course of action. So... Recognizing we're not going to solve this this problem right now, uh, and that we're just at the beginning of this conversation, I'd just be curious, and I'll, I'll just I'll pick on the Marine Corps because I'm a Marine. I mean, what I mean, what is the Marine Corps doing now, today, to deter the PLA from attempting an invasion of Taiwan? What are we doing to get into the OODA loop of all the generals and the admirals and the party officials that are looking at that and thinking, you know, in a couple weeks we got the hundredth anniversary of the founding of the party. America seems divided. Russians seem to have gotten away with invading a country. This might actually be a pretty good time to test, test limits. What are we doing today to deter? Sir, what uh, three men, Third Marine Expeditionary Force, Lieutenant General Thirty, would tell you is we are out there every single day with 31st and U and Third Marine Expeditionary Force. So it's 20,000 Marines west of the date line, 27,000, give or take, in the Pacific. And to your exercise in demonstrating reassuring allies and partners, to your point, sir, about the divest invest, uh, hear you, sir. The, is your uh, microphone on? How's that, sir? That's much better. So, sir, uh, General Clarity and 3MF is absolutely out there exercising, demonstrating daily allies and partners using those 27,000 Marines in the Pacific. Again, 20,000 west of the dateline. To your point, sir, about we have to get there, the things that we're trying to invest in now, sir, are done. They're proven. The MQ-9 Reaper with pods on it that enable you to, to pass data across the expanse of the Pacific, done. We own that two, two systems now. The naval strike missile fired off the back of a light, of joint light tactical vehicle. Done. Successfully tested in the last few months. Um, the the um, 
organic precision fires mounted where we're able to kill moving vehicles that in, in this hearing, I'll say in excess of 80 kilometers in replacement for the tank done five for five test shots. So those things are available now, sir. Now it is just a matter of getting them at scale through production into the hands of the warfighter. And then how critical would just your concept of a light amphibious warship be to that deterrence by denial posture? How would it support the Marine littoral regiments? Sure. Vital, sir, because we, we are, in fact, the deterrence force, along with our four deployed naval partners. We are the conventional deterrent. Um, that light amphibious warship provides ambiguity for us, i.e., sir, when there's limited, unambiguous warning from an adversary, those vessels can go with those assets I just described and get, because they're beachable, anywhere in four days throughout that region. And now you have to respect those small 75 marine units to enable distributed maritime operations. Those things are vital, sir. Yeah, so I guess, I guess I'll just close by saying I, I understand we have to think long-term and we have to make smart long-term investments and think about future capability, but I, I just think we're – and I'm not suggesting I have the answer, but I think we're going to need to get real creative real fast in terms of fixing our problem within the Davidson window and deterring what could be a disastrous situation that would completely destroy our deterrent posture globally not just in the first island chain, but globally. I yield back. Great. Thank you, Mr. Gallagher. Ms. Luria. Well, thank you, and I'll start by echoing uh, Mr. Gallagher's sentiment. I've, I've said it many times. I think you know, we need to have a Battle Force 2025 uh, because of this immediate uh, concern, threat, deterrent that we need in the Pacific. And, um, you know, very encouraged by the idea of the laws. I think that, you know, the idea that we came up with the idea for a capability um, that can bring the fight forward, can go after some of the vulnerabilities of the Chinese in the theater is very important. And I want to, a little bit in the weeds, go back to try to understand, again, the genesis of this. Um, I mean, quite simply, is there a document that was generated? Is there a process by which PACOM and or the Joint Staff translated this requirement forward in order to then lead to the acquisition process and, i.e., the request that you have in this budget like how do we how do we do more of this? How do you know what process is there that allows us to quickly operationalize a concept to actually delivery? Very briefly, ma'am, because your time is short. In, uh, our previous commandant, General Neller, said this is what we we're going to do. He issued out a document that said begin to do this. Our expedition, our Marine Corps Warfighting Lab issued a tentative manual for expeditionary advanced base operations. That's out now for review. Start with this and, and modify it. But the demand signal really, ma'am, does come nothing in a formal document, but it comes in our daily interactions with Indo-PACOM through Marine Forces Pacific. Uh, it comes through those headquarters and say the COCOM has delivered a demand signal. What can you do for me? So the demand signal through the GFM process, the Global Force Management process, or future capabilities? How is, how is the combatant commander, how is Admiral Davidson, now Admiral Aquilino, communicating to you as the services that are going to acquire capabilities that are requested through this budget? How is that being communicated into a process where that actually results in us buying something new, like the laws, in order to help in the theater? That certainly, ma'am, comes through through their prioritized lists of things that they, they care about, they wish uh, to have. It also just comes through literally, ma'am, daily interactions from the service components that are part of uh, Indo-PACOM saying, this is what my boss just referenced. Rather than wait on a formal uh, process, I need this, then the service chief of his Title 10 authority says, this is what I want you to go look at, and we, we take off looking for that. And, and in our case, I think we found it.
Okay. Well, thank you for that feedback. And perhaps uh, an additional conversation I can continue with your staff. Um, so I just was, again, thinking about what the combatant commander wants, needs, demands, and, you know, over the course of preparing for this week's multiple hearings, I was noticing in the 2006 budget submission, um, it was stated that the fleet response plan construct was going to go from 24 months to 27 months. And out of that, that would generate six carrier strike groups within 30 days and two additional carrier strike groups within 60 days. So that would be a six plus two construct. And that was as recent as 2006. And then the next year, it said six carrier strike groups in 30 days and one additional CSG within an additional 60 days. So we got the six plus one. And then 2010, it was just referred to multiple CSGs in the timeline. And at that point, we went from 27 to 32 months. We got to a three plus two. Now we're at 36 months, and it's arguable, um, you know, what uh, carrier strike group presence we could generate in the Pacific within the timeline we would need for the tip fit. So we just continue to say that all of these things we're doing are getting after this problem. But if you just look at this history, this is 15 years of time frame where we've reduced our operating cycle time. We've reduced our capability to provide our major assets like carrier strike groups on station in the Western Pacific to meet a potential conflict there. And so I just thought wrapping this up and wrapping up kind of a week of Navy hearings, you know, every single time through this, we keep hearing that there are going to be benefits. We're going to do things. We're going to change things. We're going to divest to invest. But we never see those benefits materialize. In fact, this is 15 years of actually seeing less force generation possible to deal with this conflict. And no one ever goes back and says, hey, you said this was fix the problem, but it didn't. Um, so just kind of wanted to wrap up the time I have to, today by saying, you know, that, that's just what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to point out that, you know, many courses of time before I or anyone on this dais was here, it feels as though the Navy has continued to come forward with these similar claims. And it's not very compelling, this divest to invest strategy. And I know that my time has uh, expired and I will yield back, Mr. Chairman. Actually, I mean, we're really at the tail end. If any of the witnesses wanted to respond to that, I mean, we've got time. Um, yeah, I, I acknowledge, uh, Rep. Laurie, your points and all the work you did to, to lay that out. Um, a, a couple of comments. Um, Admiral Davidson, when he was uh, Fleet Forces Command, really his predecessor, Admiral Gordon, he created uh, um, OFRP instantiated and then distributed maritime operations, which is a way to get after this threat. Uh, and I would say that the my view of the Navy is we've been focused on China since the 2008-2009 time frame with the inset uh, the inception of the DF-21. So um, the things that we've invested in, like an SM-61B, like a maritime strike Tomahawk might not be there if we hadn't had that foresight uh, of several years ago to get after that so we can deliver those weapons by the 25-26 time frame because it takes a long time to make a new weapon system. And those are significant and really focused on that adversary. But your point's well taken. I, I guess I would hearken back to we've got to be, my, my belief is, this is a Kilby belief, we've got to be disciplined on the use of our Navy. 
So when we do request for forces and we use up uh, uh, carriers and extend them, we're dipping into that well. And we're paying, we're, we're using today's resource, not husbanding it tomorrow because we're, we're shortening the maintenance availabilities, we're compressing things. So we have to be clear-headed and clear-minded about that uh, with the assets we have. The goal of uh, this budget was to create the most impactful force we could within the budget we had. And so I don't want to come off as viewing cruisers as not valuable. They are valuable. In the decision process we made to try to maintain those investments on those capabilities, we had to make some very hard choices. And in that is the, the, the non-funding of the DDG, uh, Flight 3 DDG in 22. So um, I, I think you bring up a lot of great points, ma'am. And we've got to continue this uh, understanding of got to fund Columbia, which is expensive to do it right, to get to all the performance you laid out, Rep. Courtney. We've got to fund readiness because if we don't have a readiness for ready force, we don't have a force. And that includes the maintenance, the training, the supply, all those elements that make that up. And then the capabilities are equally important. And then capacity is also a part of that because capacity and capability equal lethality. So it is complex. Uh, but I think you bring up uh, great points, and we, in this budget, try to create the most impactful mix, the most valuable mix, given the resources we had. Great. Well, thank you for that very thoughtful exchange. Um, but, again, we get the final word when we do the markup. So we can look forward to continuing this uh, discussion. Uh, what's that? <laughs> to be to be continued. Um, the um, Mr. Uh, Golden actually made one last request to have a, a quick question. I think to Lieutenant General Smith, and then then I think we're going to wrap it up here. So, uh, Mr. Golden, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you to the chair and ranking member for graciously entertaining me, and uh, to all three of you as well. I'm sure everyone's anxious to get going, and I got to get three miles in before I get back to the district. So. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about some of what you were talking about with uh, Representative Loria. Uh, General, you were talking about sea denial capability as part of this redesign. And I've also heard you and, and the Commandant talk about uh, reconnaissance being the eyes and, and ears, the, the sensing capabilities that you're looking to, to bring forward. When you think about sea denial capabilities in this redesign, is that something that you really see as like the reconnaissance, the eyes and the ears? in support of sea denial activities carried out by the Navy, or is that actually also an offensive capability that you're looking to bring? Sir, it's both. So, for example, uh, you know, seizing a uh, strategically important shipping lane and locking it down. Sir, absolutely. Containing an adversary inside of a cordoned area. Yes, sir, and most importantly, sir, is that inside force who can sense and make sense because we're there. We see it with our with our reconnaissance assets. I can pass that data back to Navy ships, to passing F-35As. I can pass that to anyone who has long-range precision fires, and I can act on it myself with those precision fires I bring with me. So it is it is both of those things, sir. And frankly, sir, the deterrent piece, when I'm there with an Allied partner, who now understands I've got capability to deter that adversary in war, probably a little tighter relationship in peacetime. Yep, absolutely. Uh, forgive me if I'm asking the wrong question. I don't know that there's a, a, a right answer. But as you think about all of this, is, is, would you say that the cornerstone uh, of your ability to conduct 
this mission that has been envisioned is the squad, the platoon, the company, or the battalion? Yeah, it's right. not a trite statement. It's the Marine. It is always the individual Marine, and it is the training and the recruitment of the right individuals, the training of them, the fostering, the mentoring, the coaching, the teaching, so that they'll do what you did, sir, in Afghanistan and go into harm's way willingly. But it is the individual Marine, sir. So down to the squad level. Yes, sir. Um, just a few more quick questions. Um, just wanted to make sure myself and also the committee and the Appropriations Committee understand just as you're looking at FY23 and, and, and that uh, guidance, uh, that requirement you've been given by the Commandant, I know you won't let them down. Uh, what in this budget is important, not just for FY23, but for the next big step that you have to take in this redesign? So the, the thing that we actually, that we must have, we have to have the long-range precision fires because of the long lead time of those missile systems. Both the Naval Strike Missile and the Tomahawks, people down in uh, Tucson at uh, Raytheon are busting their backsides, fighting through COVID. We cannot, we can't offer time to the adversary. Yes. If you wait till we're finished and then begin to procure, you, you're, you're giving them a two-year gift, and you need we can't board. do it. Uh, so you've talked about the Reaper, the missile, the precision fires. I know you're looking for mobility, uh, the amphib ship. Uh, you know, I'm not looking, you know, don't give me the uh, Marines make do with less answer, and I am asking you to think outside the box, but what's the next thing that's out there? Uh, what, what keeps you up at night that you wish you had if, if we could give you everything? So here's what, here's what keeps me up at night, and I hate to say this, sir, it's not a thing. It's a prospect. It's the prospect of uh, a humanitarian assistance disaster relief, for example, happening in that region where I used to command, uh, Indonesia, Bangladesh, the uh, Philippines. And the first thing that arrives is a Chinese amphib, not a United States amphib with Marines and sailors aboard. That's what keeps me up at night, sir. You want the amphib. Um, I will just say, and we don't have to work it all out right now, obviously, uh, but I'd, I'd be interested to you know, talk more about it. What, what keeps me up at night is I think about the squad or, or the company out there or the individual Marine doing a mission like this out on an island uh, in a strait, uh, taking on a pretty big mission, um, is comms. <laughs> you know the infantryman always laughs about comms. It always goes wrong. Uh, it's always the reason why, why things don't go according to plan. So what... Do you have the comms capability on both sides, Navy and Marines, to go out there and, and carry this out? Do you have what you need right now? And if you do, have you tested it out and do you know that it works? We have some, sir, but it is not sufficient when an adversary, uh, a pacing adversary, decides to enter into the jamming and the deception game. We do have a pretty robust package, sir, and that is one of the elements of our force design package. And I'll pass it to Admiral Kilby. We do have some pretty robust resilient comms, sir, but they are not enough against the pacing threat. And we are trying to double down to harden them and to make them more resilient when we are knocked off of the larger grid. So we have a Joint Force Maritime Component Command Communications Network. And with your forbearance, I would pass to my shipmate for, for what the Navy has invested heavily in. Uh, a couple quick comments. One, the value of a naval service is that we can be mobile and we can create our own network from a strike group or an ESG or a SAG if we have an elevated platform and a comms relay. So that's a value proposition that we should recognize. The second piece is this thing called Project Overmatch. So that's using technology today in a different manner to make our comms more robust and resilient. And that is a significant effort uh, for the Navy. So you'll see that burgeoning in 22, but more robustly in the future. And it's a key uh, to not only the Navy, but the unmanned portion of the Navy in the future that we get that right. 
Thank you, gentlemen. I would just say please, you know, think about that, invest in it, and make sure you ask for what you need uh, that comes is, is key. Great. Well, thank you, Mr. Golden. So I think we've uh, done uh, our, our two rounds. Uh, again, I want to thank the witnesses for your patience and, and um, look forward to working with you in the future. And uh, with no further ado, uh, this subcommittee is adjourned. That'll do it on a Wednesday. Hump day. Um, travel day for me. As you listen to this, I'm airborne. Yeah. So, head back to the corporate headquarters of All Marine Radio after my third, and we'll see if it's my final trip to Hawaii if I wore out my welcome. Um, I hope not. And again, I want to thank Elaine and then uh, Brigadier General Mike Winkler for um, for all the support in doing this. And uh, my cab driver, Eddie. Yeah, Eddie's the man. Got me all over Honolulu today. So uh, thanks for listening. And uh, the Mensa Brothers will join us tomorrow uh, live on the program. So, with that said, I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Uh, Don't be afraid to help somebody. And if I can help you, uh, don't be afraid to reach out. I'd be more than happy to. So, on a Wednesday, I'm out.